Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I travel the world speaking to organizations and governments about how the world is changing and what the world may be like in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And today, I'm incredibly pleased to have a great friend of mine, Ben Feist, on the podcast. Currently, he's a data visualization software engineer at NASA, which is very exciting. I met him when we worked together in advertising, and uh, he's, he's, he's going to share with us some of his exciting story of how he moved from advertising via this data visualization project with Apollo in real time into working full-time with NASA. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. So, we're here um, in isolation, two different places. I wish we were doing this uh, in the pub over a bit. But really, you know, we we met, I I think, nearly sort of eight or nine years ago. We were both working for an advertising agency in Canada. And then, you know, after a year or so of knowing each other, you said, hey, Nick, check out this project I've been working on. And uh, it was Apollo in real time. And that was for, uh, I think, Apollo, Apollo, what was it, 17? 17? Yeah. Apollo 17 was the first one. Can you just take, a, take us through a little bit about, you know, your background and, uh, and how you became this, uh, this contractor for NASA? Sure. Well, it's, uh, it's a kind of a crazy story that I still don't fully understand how uh, the world lucked out or, or I lucked out in relation to the world to such an extent. Um, but uh, really, it, it, I graduated from university with a computer science degree um, in 1994 or so. And, uh, and back then, the internet was, uh, you know, dial-up 28K modem world. And it was something that you used in the library to, to get, look at card catalogs of, of other universities, which was mind-blowing, you know. And uh, I always liked the idea of making things that you could see. My dad is, a, is an artist, and he's also uh, a computer programmer that has been making things really for his own entertainment for his whole life. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, as a young kid, would watch him making multimedia things happen. And he could, you know, read manuals and make something move from left to right on the screen. And, and we'd both get very excited about all that stuff. So. My, my sensibilities around what computers are for have always really been about trying to make you see something and less, I'm less interested in, you know, the, the backend data aspects of all that stuff, uh, emotionally anyway. I mean, I, I know how to do that. You have to do that if you work in the industry. Um, but uh, I never wanted to work uh, at a bank or something on a back system. I wanted to make things that people could see. So, so that led me uh, into advertising uh, in the late 90s that uh, and advertising really is is a misnomer. I mean, agency advertising agencies, as you know, Nick, have have changed greatly and expanded what they what they do and expanded even more what they claim to do. <laughs> and, um, and I was part of the new way to spend clients' money on the internet. So that meant 
building bank websites and marketing brochure websites and stuff that uh, was flash based and before that macromedia director based and you know it was a great place to just always have a fresh um, challenge thrown at you that you weren't sure how you were going to solve um, and it, you know this so as as I've gone through uh, the industry I'm 25 years in actually this month 25 years in wow uh, <laughs> in my professional career and uh, that's uh, that's that's kind of an incredible thing but th through all of that um, really what I was doing was just kind of rising to the whatever the most recent challenge was um, now I, I guess a lot of your listeners haven't worked in that environment but really that means that you're never working on anything for too long and the things that you uh, make go away very quickly after you're finished making them I mean there's some exceptions with like great big corporate websites and things like that that could, that could last for years but mm. you know mostly it's something that lasts for six months to a year and you know, as, as things moved along, I got more interested in, in the Apollo program. And, and I thought, you know, I, geez, I wish I could get a client that would let me do stuff, you know, for NASA. Like imagine if I had NASA as a client and, you know, that's too bad. I can't work on NASA stuff because I don't have NASA as a client. Like what a, what a wrongheaded, stupid, you know, approach to that. Right. Mm. You can do anything you want. I was just always, uh, I guess, mentally shackling myself that I wasn't going to do anything unless I was getting paid. Um, and you know, and I, when you're young and you're not making very much money, and you know, you you have to spend 60 hours a week doing what you're doing to not make very much money. That's true, but I never changed that attitude as things changed for me through as my career grew until I realized in about 2009 that I could work on this Apollo stuff if I wanted, and I started doing that. And I think that's just, an important... just, just, just as an idea that you had, like no, yeah. no one told you that you should do this. It was just, Hey, this would be a good idea. Yeah, it, it was, it really, it was an idea that was something like, um, I had come across this website that's still online. It's called the Apollo lunar surface journal and the ALSJ and the Apollo lunar surface journal is a, is a, you know, hypertext 1.0, uh, website that's been online since the early nineties. And it's been added to, it's still ongoing. It's like a living document that keeps growing and it contains transcripts and pictures and everything of the Apollo missions. And I came across this in the late nineties and could not believe that the internet had delivered this to my computer and I could actually read what the astronauts had said to each other and to mission control when they were on the moon. Uh, and it was one of those light bulb going off moments of how rich uh, information can be when you have access to it and I, we've all we all forget what it was like when we had to go to a library or something to try to get information and you know and you had to do a huge amount of stack based research to try to find things yeah. and if, I, I've just pulled it up right so the yeah. Apollo Lunar Service Journal this is yeah. old internet right yeah yeah this is and if you think like back in the day that blue underlined text that was a link that took you to another document was yeah. super innovative like that that's crazy that this isn't a paper PDF document with a reference to something else that you now have to go find. You can click a blue link and instantly have access to that other thing. So this was like a great expression to me of uh, the information revolution. Um, and, and, uh, and I thought immediately when I saw it, because I was a multimedia guy, like, oh my God, what if you could listen to what they were saying from the recordings while well, you were reading these transcripts and you were looking at the photos and it all came together like, it would be really compelling. What a great multimedia project that would be, you know, only to realize that 
Apollo 17 is 302 hours long and the transcript is 2,500 pages in length. And the scale of what I just thought would be cool, it was so big that, you know, it was like no one could ever hire you to do it. And, and why would you ever, you know, how could you ever do something like that? Um, no, no, no one would sit down as a director of NASA and think, hmm, what, what would be a great project? Oh, yeah, this is going to take thousands of hours of work and we've got to think of completely new ways of of presenting this data and you know some people are going to read it on the internet uh probably didn't think about that just because you know it's yeah. like climbing it's like climbing everest before anyone climbed everest right well i guess it, it it was you know and somebody at nasa might have thought of it but it's really just like you know in back to the to the private sector world that we're from it, unless it's unless it's got a budget of, you know, the amount of hours that you have to spend doing it, it's not going to happen. Right. And the true number of brute force hours required for this um, was in the thousands. And, um, and really what I did well, though, is, is I thought <clears throat> I wasn't, I didn't admit to myself, I was going to just do this. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm so altruistic. I'm going to spend all this time. I, I actually thought because of my training and ability as a developer, I would be able to come up with, clever ways that would automate parts of this process that would have required it to digitize all this material and to get it into a into a time-based format which is really what apollo in real time is all about um, and it turns out that's that wasn't possible i mean i used a lot of those kinds of techniques to shorten the task but it came down to actually having to read every line of text and correct um, what the timestamps were of what people said uh, based on the original recordings and so that um, was a, it's a very long story to, to describe how that work was done, but essentially mm -hmm. that that became um, something I did on evenings and weekends after work. So I, you know, you and I would finish working together during the day and keeping our clients satisfied, and then to unwind instead of watching TV, <laughs> I would, you know, pop over my computer and start reading and listening to Apollo 17 uh, in action as I tried to pull this stuff together. And the first time I pulled together the uh, small clip that would play back in real time. It was everything and more than I had imagined it would be. So as soon as I started getting some of the positive reinforcement to myself that this was going to be really cool, um, I couldn't stop. And there was no reason to stop because, you know, I was a, it was a hobby. You can quit a hobby anytime you want. That's the definition, right? It's a job you can quit anytime you want. And, you know, as soon as I work on it for too much, because you do go a bit cross-eyed, doing this kind of work and a lot of it's just data cleaning you know raw data cleaning it's not not higher level problem solving it's just work um you know you uh, just so step away take a few nights off and and it gets done it took me six years to do apollo 17. right six years to do apollo 17. Now, i want to talk to you because if you if you go and look at apollo in real time and and you look at you go back to apollo 17 this first project that you worked on you know, you've 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 created an interface where you've been able to take audio and video. Uh, this is this is all, all was all publicly available, and uh, then you've got you've got images, uh, but you've also got this this navigation, and and it's and it feels like it's like a dashboard for someone at NASA, right? In a way, <laughs> well, yeah. Thank but you. I'll take that yeah, as a compliment. But but at the same time. How do you how do you start approaching this? I mean, we we've more recently spoken about how you've created this world of no narrative storytelling, but you know how did how did you evolve this to become something that's ultimately usable 
but can take you in sort of a thousand different directions at any point of each of these missions. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a new, a new model. Um, I've, and this is all post-rationalized, just to be clear. This isn't like I woke up one morning and saw this vision and tried to enact it. <laughs> like I'm trying to explain right. why it works now. Um, it is really, you know, if you, if you go to any point in the mission and there is nothing happening for an hour, you hear radio static for an hour. And it's the actual radio static that came down from space for that hour. Um, and, but you can quickly click with your mouse and go to another point in the mission. And so just to, just to summarize how this thing works, it's doggedly about when everything happened and the way that you navigate to a point of when is you just go to a current mission time. There's a bunch of different metaphors on the screen that'll help you get there. <clears throat> but that, that current mission time might contain a photo was taken at that time. And if the, t if the photo is taken at that time, it appears the moment it was shot. So that, that gives you this different view of a photo gallery where you're normally looking through like, oh, let's look at the vacation photos and, oh, here, I remember this day, I remember that day. And we're all used to that view, which is like photo first, time second. This was a, an attempt to put time first, photo second. So if it's a famous photo that had, you know, you've seen a zillion times of Buzz Aldrin on the surface and it, another photo of his feet was taken right after that, it, the feet go right over top of the famous photo. Like, Nothing gets special uh, treatment um, just because of what you might think of it, because it's about recreating what happened. So it's an, it's almost like an event reconstruction. So the so the interface um, really is just how how are what are the, some of the different problem solving that you need to do to try to make, you know, for example, you can use your mouse to scrub through three hundred hours of material. So in order to do that, you can't have one scrubber that there's not enough pixels on the screen to get to every second if you do that. So I needed two levels of zoom that get down to one pixel per second. And that's really why it looks like that. Cause I just thought, well, that's how you make a scrubber to go through the whole mission. The top one actually does drag you from uh, pre-launch to splashdown. And if you go further down, then you can start getting down into the nitty gritty. So these layers of abstraction because of the density of, of this information, and, and just the sheer amount of time, I love the idea of being time-led rather, yeah. rather than being sort of, um, you know, choose these events and jump to here. And it's like, no, 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 jump to this point in time. Yeah. And, and real time means that, you know, from what I understand, you can start at the beginning, hit a button, and you can sit there for however long the mission was or just yeah. leave it running in the background and just relive it, like, viscerally through... All of yes. all of that, the, you know, the audio that's happening in the control room on the ground, and all, all everything that's happening, you know, on the missions to the moon, and actually on the moon as well. That's right. There, there's uh, a sense of be playing back, and even if you jump to a specific spot in the middle, uh, and you know, I can send you a link that takes you to a specific moment, and if you open it up, it plays, and you're like, "That's cool," but it never stops playing. It will play until they splash down and the USS Ticonderoga recovers them from the ocean, like, you know, five, 10 days later, whenever it might be based on when you jump there. And that there's something compelling to that in that it, it is literally sucks you in. So you might've arrived because of a tweet that says, you know, Hey, check out when Neil Armstrong says one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And you see that and you hear it and you see what, the TV was showing when he said that, but then it'll just keep playing until, and this, that's Apollo 11, by the way, 
it'll keep playing until uh, the end of the mission. So what you do is you wind up actually pulling people in past this short attention span that we as marketers, I was taught people have on the internet, you know, we, because we're, you know, everybody's so focused on clicking ads, which almost nobody does. And then how long do they spend on the marketing website they click through to? Well, nobody spends more than three seconds on one of those websites. Right. We're all used to measuring like amazing successes in seconds. And the average time spent on Apollo 13 in real time was over 17 minutes per user. And, and that's just an entirely different, you know, that doesn't mean, mean it's more successful, by the way. It's, it's negatively financially successful for me. <laughs> so it's, right. it's not a good comparison to marketing. Um, but it, it is an entirely different um, use of the internet. And it's kind of back to what I always thought this stuff was all about um, back in the 90s and when we were all imagining what the information age might bring. Yeah, I mean, this isn't, this isn't someone going to Amazon and scrolling for hours and choosing things to buy and then suddenly walking away and something comes through the mail. This is someone sitting down, potentially 17 minutes, maybe even longer. Yeah. And just consuming information, discovery, you know, really trying to sort of navigate an entirely new world, an aspirational world that they, they may want to be in one day, but are trying to understand what it must have been like to be there at that moment in time. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it is worth talking a little bit about the, where the internet has taken us with all the different big platforms, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Is if you think of how those things work, they're all advertising based. And because they're all advertising based, they're just, they're pressured to evolve over time to getting people to consume smaller, more, so a higher number of smaller chunks of material. Right. So, you know, if you spend uh, half a second reading a tweet, that's better than if you spend one second reading a tweet to Twitter, right? And that, so we're, we're just kind of all victim to this, um, you know, advertising led change to how the internet works. And, you know, because clicks win, clicks, clicks cause more revenue and then more revenue means more success. And then we're, you know, we're iterating to make it worse on the internet. So like, yeah, I think it's worse. Yeah. This is an example of how it doesn't have to be that way. It can go the other way. And that this depth of richness of engagement um, is something that you could never have done without the internet. I, you know, I couldn't have made this a CD-ROM. It would have been about 400 CD-ROMs tall, you know, it, the amount of data that's on this thing. And, um, it, and it's just kind of at your fingertips, just like that first experience I had in the late 90s on Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. So I would argue that the majority of the internet is, is worthless, right? Now, we both worked in advertising. We both stood there in boardrooms. We both said, let's tell stories. Let's do this. And we, we, we both probably heard clients say, you know what? We want a social media campaign like Barack Obama had to get himself elected. Or we want to tell stories like Oprah Winfrey tells stories. And we were working with, uh, you know, account people that yeah. weren't as, as brave as maybe we were to stand up and say, you know what, you're not Barack Obama and you're not Oprah. And by the way, you don't have any stories that are that scintillating. So yeah, yeah you're an insurance company. You know, yeah. nobody wants to have a relationship with you. Yeah, yeah. Here's a bunch of whiz bag uh, bang sort of images. Five seconds, done, five seconds, done, five seconds, done, pre-roll, um, have we moved the dial? Great, I, I once did a, a campaign for 
one of the world's largest technology companies, maybe based out in Seattle. And, uh, and they said, right, okay, we, we've got $124 million to spend on uh, paid advertising, uh, which I kind of was, was <laughs> my mind was blown, about $300,000 on web. It's like, cool, we can play with that. And it's like, what do you want to achieve? And they're like, yeah, you know, we just want people to, you know, feel like they, 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 you know, feel like they like us a little bit more. I'm like, what? They want people to click through and buy. They're like, oh, no, we just want people to like us a little bit more. And it's like the Internet's become this low value, high frequency yeah. world. Right. In fact, you know, I, I would argue that during this pandemic, you know, we're connecting on Zoom. Everyone's connecting on Zoom. We're probably having a, a, a better relationship through Internet based technology today because we're actually having conversations in a way versus spending that exact same amount of time, you know, deep in emails and deep in Facebook and Instagram and whatever. Right. But I want to come back to this because this is the opposite of reductionist ad based world. This is this is a deep story that happens over days, uh, millions of seconds with, with lots of data at every single point. Yeah. And, and you, you started this in what, 2009. Yeah. And for a number of years, you built this out. When did people start paying attention to this stuff? Well, it didn't really go online until, uh, let's see, December of 2015. So mm. Apollo17.org went online for the anniversary. So, it's an extra special experience uh, emotionally if you can follow in real time on the anniversary of a mission because this now drops you into what was happening right now during the mission you know, for, at that time, 45 years ago, I think that was the first year that I put it online. Um, is that right? No, 44 years ago, I think was right. the first year. Um, so that, you know, that's a bit of an esoteric question, but for Apollo 11 in real time this past summer, it was exactly 50 years later, the 50th anniversary of the first landing on the moon. What were they doing on the mission right now? And that is a compelling enough question that will get people to go check it out and get hooked. You know, that, that first view where they're jumping in, like right now, now they're suddenly on along for the ride on the mission and it's the whole thing. It's not some you know, a half hour documentary about the mission or something it, that's mm. being explained to you. It's just letting you witness it. So that's, that's the idea of the, of the no narrative that is what I've come to call it is, is I think it's working it, and it works across the political spectrum and it works across genders. Um, and it's uh, because it's just go watch for yourself what they did. Don't, you know, get this person's take on it or that person's take on it or someone else trying to, Put their own spin on on the reality and we're also allergic to spin now um which you know we could talk to for talk about on another podcast for a whole hour um about what's been happening in the public discourse due to the same changes in social media mm. and the information age and misinformation age or whatever you want to call it um is this is this gets away from that because it's literally only first order things that were recorded during the mission so there's i don't allow into it um any interpretive works. I, you know, there's, there's actually some exceptions to that. For example, I've made 3D renderings of where they drove on the surface of Apollo 17. But these are based, this is based on historical data of where they were and, and lunar reconnaissance orbiter data of uh, recently taken pictures of the surface so I can make 3D renderings of that. 
another example of an exception would be the academic papers that have been written about the samples that were collected. So that's derivative work. But, but this, is, this is, again, this is a jumping off point. So you get to the point where they pick up that rock, and then suddenly you can see the 50 years of scientific research that went into um, the research of, that was done about that rock. And what did we learn about the universe because of this sample that was brought back? Um, so again, you know, pause the mission and now suddenly pivot around that moment and, and go down another lateral uh, exploration of, of reading about the science or reading what, you know, how was the crew feeling in this moment? Like the post-mission commentary, for example, you could pause and then read like paragraphs of information about uh, what was happening and what did they think was happening at this part of the mission. Did you, when you, once you released, uh, you know, Apollo in real time for Apollo 17, did you actually send it to NASA? Is that how they found this? No, they, um, I didn't have any contact to anybody at NASA. And, and as, as an outsider, NASA is very um, good at um, basically having a, a wall that you can't get through to get inside because you know, right. there's, there's a lot of crazy people out, people out there that take a, an interest in NASA and, you know, the, the, um, the faucet of garbage, I guess, that would be pouring into the organization is pretty substantial, right? So right. so you can't just email someone and go, hey, uh, I'm a guy that built a thing on the internet. Uh, you don't know me at all. Check it out. Because it will be in the inbox with, you know, 500 other people claiming the moon landings didn't happen or some kind of, you know, other you know, bizarre stuff that comes from the public. And, and uh, so I needed to wait for someone at NASA to notice it. And, and someone did. And they called me up. Uh, and said, "Hey, we just came across this. I just came across this website. It's really cool. Um, and you know, I think you made a mistake in the transcripts of this spot. You might, it's, I think it's this person talking, not that person." Uh, and I was like, "Great, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll fix that right away." And and I started this dialogue with a, a gentleman named Noah Petro from Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. And at that point, I mean, <laughs> I mean, fast forward. I mean, when was that? 2015? Was that yeah, that was 2015. 2015. And fast forward now, you're working with them. But I mean, they didn't hire you straight away. I mean, no. so what was that journey like <laughs> from, from that first, uh, you know, their first discovery and then that first conversation with you? I mean, I mean, what, what happened between uh, then and now? Yeah, well, uh, it, the world took an interest in it. Um, throughout that anniversary. And it was the, honestly, I, after working for so many years in the marketing world, um, it was the first thing I'd made that uh, was noteworthy. Right. <laughs> and, and suddenly science publications and magazines and from around the world, because this is a universally uh, adored topic, the Apollo missions, um, were saying, check this out. And, and it was like the internet grabbed it, the, some, a community of people on the internet. So like space enthusiasts really liked mm. it. And then the cool things on the internet um, tech world uh, really liked it. And I was trying to basically break into different groups of people to try to get them to see it. Um, because I figured once you saw it, you'd get pulled in and maybe you'd either enjoy it or you wouldn't, or you might actually get a different point of view of whether you should be interested in this topic and all those kinds of things are of benefit. Um, and it was nominated for a Webby award in, uh, in that year. And, uh, and I didn't win the Webby Award, but it was like, you know, lots of votes came in and lots of buzz around it. And, and then, you know, it was kind of over. So I, <laughs> so fast forward to 2016, um, about June, 
uh, it was like I had my little moment of fame, uh, the little blip of, you know, six years of work, little blip of moment of fame. You know, this is how it works, right? Like putting a mm. record out or something, right? And, um, and, uh, and Noah had called me at that point and we had, we'd st struck up a friendship. Uh, it was just based on phone calls and, and chatting about stuff. And, and eventually I asked him if he had any lunar, he's the head of chief scientist of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter mission. This is what he does at Goddard. And I was like, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, do you guys have any, you know, photos of the valley that they were in or any other data, 3D information? Because maybe I could make renderings of where they drove and stuff because there's no TV footage of that because they had to turn the TV transmitter off when they drove. Um, and Noah was like, oh my God, that's my job. Here, here's a, here's a huge amount of uh, science data, like raw out of the spacecraft that, you know, had, and I was like, oh my God, now I have to figure all this stuff out. <laughs> so it was my last attempt to try to make something of it. Um, right. You know, okay, well, what am I going to do for the 2016 version? Like maybe I can relaunch the thing again, but this time with all these 3D renderings in it. So I spent the summer rendering out um, every traverse that they did in the lunar rover. And they drove like, I can't remember the distance, like 39 kilometers in distance. And they were, they were uh, I think, uh, 15 kilometers away from the lunar module like this is a serious adventure these guys were on mm. um and i made you could finally see that um and this was like using lunar reconnaissance orbiter data to make an emotional thing happen it wasn't you know analyzing the composition of the moon or any of the science that they actually launched the mission to do um and it was helping to reanimate the apollo 17 mission so eventually i i thought it looked good enough to send it back to noah and i said you know, hey, I made something with all that data you sent me, check it out. And he uh, opened it up and said, called me immediately and said, oh, you need to come down to Goddard and present this work. This is amazing. And, and I, I was kind of like, yes, please. I will happily come down to Goddard. Um, and so that was in the summer. And he said, well, you know, maybe for the anniversary in December, you can come down and then you're the, you know, we'll do a lunch bag, a brown bag lunch meeting with all the scientists that work on LRO and you can, um, tell them about all the work that you did. That's, and I thought that'd be a great victory lap. You know, there's a, there's a better blip than, you know, almost winning a Webby or whatever happened the right. year before. Um, I'll be able to tell my grandkids that I went to NASA and then, you know, cherry on top of the Sunday of this whole project. Um, and now I can move on to something else. Right. And it was literally the day that I, so I gave the presentation and after the presentation, another guy there named Jacob Bleacher, uh, who's chief exploration scientist of the Human Exploration Operations Mission Directorate at NASA. They've got really long names for everything in NASA, right? <laughs> that basically means putting people in space. Right. Directorate. Uh, he's the chief scientist of that. Um, was it, you can imagine there's a lot of other parts of NASA where we're sending probes and, and robots into space. This is about people. And so exactly Apollo 17 style science being conducted on the surface. Um, and he, he said, you know, we think this, this time-based indexing uh, is, could be the solution to some, one of the problems that they have at NASA, uh, which is how to get all this different information from all these different instruments and people and, and uh, basically siloed groups into a singular view that will help you to move laterally across all the things that happen when we're doing a spacewalk. Um, and I was like, that's really cool. I'm, I'm glad that, I mean, it's not a new idea. It's not like I invented this idea. It's li literally like how security cameras work. Like, right. 
you know, it's, it's not that big a deal. It's just applying it in this interesting way. Um, and I said, that's really cool. I'm glad that you're going to do something with all that. And he said, no, 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 we're not doing anything with this idea. You're doing something with this idea. And, uh, and I could not believe what he was saying to me. I, I was literally getting tunnel vision. I was so stressed talking to him because I felt like I was emotionally, I must be misinterpreting what he's saying. And what he's saying is so awesome that I hate that I'm misinterpreting it right now. <laughs> and he invited me to come with them into one of their field deployments in the New Mexico desert that year. So uh, in 2017, in June, I was standing in the New Mexico desert with a bunch of astronauts and um, including Jack Schmidt, who was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 17 at 82 years old, came into the field to try to teach uh, Butch Wilmore, another astronaut, um, how to conduct field geology on another planet. And I'm standing there helping them to organize their field data as they gathered it. Uh, so, you know, th th this was a continuation of, I'll be able to tell my grandkids this, I'll be able to tell my grandkids that. It just keeps going. And now here we are in 2020, and I'm still pinching myself that I, I get to work this. So, so at that point in the desert, you know, you were actually brought on board as a contractor then, I'm guessing, right? No, that was a, we can't pay you, but if you'd like to join us, ah. we'll pay for your flight. And I was like, sounds great. Um, right. And then, I, then, you know, like I could keep going on how this all worked, but I'll try to go quickly on the next step. But I got back to real world uh, with all this scientific data. And I was waiting and the phone stopped ringing. Like, you know, they went off onto the next thing that they're working on and everybody's so busy at NASA. And it was amazing that they invited me to begin with. The last thing on their list is like call Ben and keep engaging with him is I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I make something out of all this data? I've got the data. I, I'm, I was so, I'm still like, I try to describe, I'm so used to having a client in an agency that tells you what to do. Mm. And then you have to deviate them off what they've just said, because it, sometimes it's not the best thing to do. But the momentum's coming from the client. I am reactionary. So it's very, very different for me to be creating my own momentum. So it was, again, I kind of sat there waiting like a good agency guy, waiting for the people at NASA to tell me what to do. I'm like, well, how stupid, right? Like, I've got the data. Why don't I just do something with it? And they don't know what they want. That's why they've invited me into the field. You know, you've, they said to me, you've thought about this more than anybody else. And that's what we do. We collect people that are experts in things mm. and we have them solve problems for us. So, so in that, with that in mind, I made a prototype that replayed all this data of us walking through the desert, came up with a concept around how we could organize the field data, and then did the same thing. Like, hey, I made something with all the data we gathered in the desert. And I sent it to Jake and, and within minutes, he said, this is amazing. I'm about to give a presentation. Could you, uh, you know, send me a video of a screen cap of this so I can use it in my presentation. And next thing I know, it's like on the giant screen at uh, one of their geology conferences. And it was just like, okay, what can I throw in to make the phone continue to ring? And, you know, cause I don't want, I don't want engagement to stop. Um, and, you know, it, then, then it was like apply it to Johnson Space Center, uh, where I work now, uh, to the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, where they train astronauts underwater, and then that has led into applying it into Mission Control, where we have spacewalks happening on the in International Space Station. And you know, as it as this idea expands and these pieces of software get written, it's going to become part of the Return to the Moon on the Artemis program that's happening in 2024. 
Um, so it, you know, I, I'm again, I'm still in the same mode. I'm trying to see, like, say yes, and then try to make it fit into uh, something that's going to cause more expansion. Um, and they did call me one day and just said, listen, you know, we're, frankly, it's complicated to explain who you are. You're this guy who made a thing. You're American, but you live in Canada and you know, you're, um, could, could, it would be easier if you just worked here. <laughs> could you, then you're just Ben from Johnson Space Center. Would, would you be interested in doing that? And, uh, that happened a year ago now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I've been full-time contract at Johnson Space Center for the past year and have taken a pause in the advertising world. Yeah, it's not a pause, it's over, Ben. Like, <laughs> advertising's over. Like, well. I, I didn't take a pause from the advertising world. I, I, I got laid off twice in, in, a, in a year from two agencies, uh, a different agency from where we worked at and then from the agency that we worked at together. You know, these things happen. Advertising, it happens. And, well, I, uh, I guess I'm, I'm still hedging. I'm not trying to throw away my uh, previous career, you know, call it worthless and, you know, for, uh, head forward. Because I think there's still a lot of good work that could be done if I did sure. work there. And, you know, I, I did worry for a while that if you, because like you just said, there's, there's basically a, you know, storm of work happening in advertising. And if you're not part of it, then you're not right. part of it. Yeah. And, okay, if I step away, you know, like it, the car moves on without me and I'm standing on the side of the road, you know, will I ever, ever be able to get back in the car? And, and I, and pretty much everybody called me an idiot for even asking that question and just said, listen, like, if you can't come up with a good story on your resume for why you didn't work at an agency for a while, while you worked at right. NASA, then there's something wrong with you. So, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, this is it. I mean, we do walk away. It's like when, when I really dedicated all, all of my work to to just doing futurism, to having these conversations, to writing, and then suddenly, you know, you're you're working for some of the biggest companies in the world. You're walking on stage in front of two thousand people. In fact, last year I was uh, the biggest conference I did last year was about twenty one hundred people, and it was in uh, Las Vegas at the Bellagio, and I and it was to about twenty one hundred data professionals, and I had thirty minutes, and I spent about five minutes talking about. Apollo in real time being a completely new way of looking at data, considering storytelling and, and being led by time through a no narrative storytelling. And, and you helped me uh, sort of cool. understand that and, and, and bring that in. And, you know, that, that's what we do. So uh, I, I, I put, uh, you know, a gentleman's better $50 that you don't ever go back to working in advertising like you did before. I mean, I've worked uh, with PR companies and advertising companies, but you come in as the expert and you jump in, you jump out. You still get to have the fun and we don't need to, we don't need to deal with the, you don't the, have to run the department. We don't, don't have, have to run to, the department. Yeah. You, you know, you don't have to hire and fire people, which you have to do a lot in advertising. <laughs> and you, you don't have to, you know, sit down with lots of clients that, that literally uh, like saw something on the internet that morning that they want you to build for them, but make it something different and on brand anyway. But, but Ben, I just wanted to sort of like wrap up what we're talking about here. This dedication to an interest in space and in NASA, Apollo yeah. 17 being that candidate project, seeing that data, taking that leap forward. And it, this, is, this was all about having fun with technology, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, that's something my dad taught me to do. You know, it's okay to do things just because you want to do them. You know, yeah. it, you know that, that sounds self-evident, right? But like I said earlier, 
I literally didn't let myself think about that because I was so worried about all the stuff that I had to do that I never stopped to think about what I wanted to do until I started doing it, you know, and, and it was really energizing, like, because it was something I truly wanted to do. It wasn't, you know, cause you could get into the trap of, Hmm, what, what thing could I do that would lead to a job at NASA later? Yeah. <laughs> and now you've just created another problem for yourself. You know, like you can't, you can't think there's anything except more excitement and engagement, you know, like, cause you're doing it for yourself. Um, I, you know, and it's, it's almost like a, part of part of a negative story is like oh this guy did this thing on the side and then nasa hired him it sounds like one of those stories where you know you wanted that to happen i i truly didn't think it was going to happen until the day it did when they called me and said do you want to just work here because i still didn't because you know i still don't have a phd in astrophysics or i'm not a scientist uh geologist which is all the group of people that i work with um so you can you know i can have uh imposter syndrome to a certain extent but that's okay just keep keep adding value play my position you know i know what i'm good at and don't weigh in on the stuff you don't know anything about which is the opposite of advertising where you're weighing in on everything everybody weighs in on everything in every conversation in the places that i've worked and it, and it is up to you to be more persuasive in order to get things done and it doesn't work that way here it's great you just oh i don't know anything about that so i don't need to talk right now you know it's a different take um and and i'm enjoying kind of learning that and uh and i am confident in what i'm good at and hopefully it just continues to be something that uh that they need at nasa and, and i'll keep going yeah it, it's kind of interesting you know you go back to what jfk said right uh <laughs> we we was it we choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do other things not because they're easy but because they are hard and yeah. you know, you did not choose to build this website because it was easy. I'm not sure that you, you decided to build it because it was hard, but you knew that stepping forward and taking that chance with something that's creative, something that drives you um, from, from, you know, those experiences with you and your dad and the inspiration that NASA has for children. And now you've cr literally created a website and an experience that's probably going to inspire millions of children around the world to probably think about getting into space, getting excited about it, reliving those moments and, and to have aspirations to, to leave this, this earth. Right. I, I think so. And it's been, I've been getting feedback that that's been happening. Uh, the Apollo 11 um, anniversary was a million people from 224 different countries. And Apollo 13 anniversary, which just ended, that website's online now, was half that, but for twice the length average each, I think because of COVID and everybody having lots of time to go down uh, an interesting rabbit hole. Uh, and that was from almost the same number of countries. I think it was 214. Um, but, and so the, it's, the fact that these uh, missions come back to life gives the people that weren't alive a chance to at least see what was going on and and even more exciting for me is that now from this position of what we're doing within nasa is as i continue to progress to the artemis program is this could be how the world experiences the artemis program when it happens live so um, i hope that this will give everybody in the world their artemis moment as it would be called because that's how people refer to the apollo moment that inspired a generation and you know we'll be watching the first woman walk on the moon in real time 
Well, Ben Feist, it's a real pleasure chatting to you, and we could we could chat for hours on this. And in fact, we have chatted for hours about this <laughs> yeah. uh, previously. In fact, you know, I, I've lived through some of these moments where you, you told me when you got a job at NASA, you told me when you went down to Johnson Space Center, you told me when you met the astronauts from Apollo 17. And, and every time, it's very exciting for your friends to see this, but you can just see the excitement in, in, and, and passion in what you do around making this data come to life. Ben Feist, friend, expert in data for NASA, visualization, <laughs> inspirer of children, ex-advertising professional, and let's keep it that way. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for your time uh, speaking to us on the Exponential Minds podcast. Well, thank you very much, Nick. It's a lot of fun. Thank you.